Welcome to another episode of Ego Check with the DM. I am your host, Michael Mallon, and tonight I'm really excited to be joined by Dr. Katie Gordon. She is a psychologist and recently put out a book titled The Suicidal Thoughts Workbook, CBT Skills to Reduce Emotional Pain, Increase Hope, and Prevent Suicide. And for listeners of the pod, or if you've looked at my blog in the past few years, this suicide, suicide awareness has been something that I've been discussing. So I was really excited that this book exists. And over the past couple of weeks, I've dove into it headfirst. And uh, I'm already using it with some of the patients I work with. And I was thrilled that she agreed to come on to the show and talk about her inspirations for the book. So Katie, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me on, and I, I really appreciate all the good work that you're doing in psychology in general, but also in suicide prevention. So thanks for inviting me on. Yes, and I, I always like to take an opportunity when possible to have these types of conversations. I think with mental health awareness, you know, suicide prevention, these are some topics that have gained more attention in the mainstream here in recent years typically for some tragic reasons of some high-profile individuals who have committed suicide or ended their life, depending on how you like to say that phrase. So it's not an easy topic for a lot of us to discuss, and I was curious how this became an area of focus for you, given that a lot of people and even a lot of mental health providers tend to avoid this topic. So what made you approach it? I think there are a couple factors, but some of the main ones that really stand out is that in high school, there were two people that I knew who died by suicide, and I had mm -hmm. friends who really struggled and attempted suicide, and um, that the suffering and struggling that they went through hit me really hard, and, and I really was wanted to do something that could help people who are going through that. And then when I went to undergraduate school at Florida State University, I was kind of interested in depression and focusing on that. My father's a therapist, so I did kind of have my an idea in my mind that I wanted to go into the mental health field. Okay. And I ended up looking around for labs to get some research experience in. And Dr. Thomas Joyner is at Florida State University and I worked in his lab, and while I was there, started learning more about eating disorders and suicidal behavior and suicidal thoughts and how much of a need there was for more research in that area. And so I, I ended up shifting uh, towards more eating disorders and suicide prevention, and then I returned to Florida State for grad school where I was mentored by Dr. Joyner, and that really seeing his dedication to discovering more about how to understand and, and prevent suicide and share that information with the public really inspired me. So I think that those were all factors that kind of led me to this area. Yeah. And the interpersonal theory of suicide is uh, Dr. Joyner's many contributions to this field, but that is certainly something that when I saw that those that Venn diagram of these three factors of I, I am alone, I am a burden, I am not afraid to die. And if you are in the middle of all those three factors, that that 
is really heightened risk for suicidal behavior. Um, that's something I've, I've been very open about. Um, my brother um, dying by suicide back in 2017. And in retrospect, it's like looking at it through that lens. Not that, not that I agree with it, but it's like, this makes sense to me. It kind of fits this profile of the type of suffering he, he was under. Kind of working with someone who's very much recognized as an expert in the field, what was that like for you? What, what did you absorb from that? How did you get into it, so to speak? Uh, so uh, first, I want to say that uh, his that's the, the interpersonal theory of suicide. I was lucky to be there while he was developing it. And what you're saying, I think, you know, Dr. Joyner has been open about losing his father to suicide, mm -hmm. and I think that he. The idea that you can take kind of findings from science and make sure that it also makes sense to people who, like you and like him and like many of us, have lost people to suicide, that that's important. And that that connection, that it has to be something that is guided by science but also connects and can help people, was a huge impact on me. And that's certainly what I tried to channel through this book was pulling in scientific findings, but it also yes. had to have practical application. So I think that seeing that modeled and working with him and seeing his compassion and also his rigor with research, that combination had a big impact on what I aspired to be. When did the seed get planted for you that this is a book? And this is a book I can write. Is that that is a big undertaking? It's almost like these two huge mental leaps. And has that been cooking in your brain for years? And what was the spark for that? I was a professor for ten years and then left academia initially to be a full time therapist a little over two years ago. And I had started. Um, I've liked podcasting and writing for the public. I've, it's been important to me to kind of take scientific findings and share them in ways that, that are accessible. I think mm -hmm. you and I share that in common. Um, and also when I, of course, teaching that and, and doing therapy, a lot of that is, is trying to take that information and, and make it available. And so something that both and in, in my personal life and also working as a therapist and when I was working as a professor saw is that there are just gaps in care, right? There are people who are in long wait lists to get in. And sometimes it's hard to find someone who um, specializes and has expertise in suicidal thoughts and behavior. And then when you look at, there are a ton of self-help books, right? But when you look at ones that are specifically geared towards suicidal thoughts, it is limited, at least one that's uh, clearly labeled as such, right? There are, okay. there are some that include it. Um, so there seemed to be a gap there. So what, what actually happened is a friend of mine had written an anxiety book, and I contacted him, and I just kind of got interested in writing a book after blogging for a while and said, you know, how that process happened. He connected me with his editor, and the editor and I talked about some of these ideas about writing a book. He talked about the idea of a workbook. And so that's kind of how it's shaped. And then as soon as the I wrote the proposal and it was accepted, I panicked and was like, I don't know if I'm going to be able to pull this off. <laughs> so, Oh, no, they said yes. Yeah, I was like, well, now I have to write this. And, the, and that was, um, well, it was 
anxiety-inducing but meaningful. One of the things that really impressed me about about the book, and I, I shared this with you previously, is the, the the tone and your your approach. It's incredibly direct. It's incredibly conversational, and it is very normalizing. You know, it's not preachy. It's not like here's let me beat you over the top of the head with a bunch of research articles and links and references. It's more like you're having a conversation with the person who's reading the book and in distress. And I really appreciated that. I think that's something that really comes through in the writing and the exercises that are suggested in the book. And I'm wondering if that was always the approach or did that evolve over time? Thank you for saying that. There was a concerted effort to try to make that happen. And the first draft was not like that. Most of my writing has been journal articles for for scientific journals and so i even though i have blogged informally and intermittently for a while i i hadn't written anything like this before and the when i sent the first three chapter chapters to an editor to look at they specifically guided me towards picturing a person that I'm talking to directly. And that's when I really started thinking about how, how do I do therapy? How do I talk to people about these things? Mm-hmm. And it, it wasn't, it wasn't automatic, but I, I'm through feedback and working through that. I'm happy to hear that it landed in that place because that is really what I wanted. I thought that feedback was important for them to give me. And there, there's multiple places in the, and again, it's called the Suicidal Thoughts Workbook, and it's available at all places. Uh, I got my copy from from Amazon. I've been marking it up. I have post-it notes all over the place. Uh, was just using it with someone this week uh, in in a, in a session. So there's multiple places in the book where you talk very openly about suffering and about emotional pain, physical pain, and really the realities of our existence and how our brains are, they're wired to suffer. And that's a concept I've talked about with some previous guests. And, you know, as a therapist, just what working with patients, putting together this book, why was it important to, to really give that some space and some life and just let the individual reading the book know that like, this is okay. It's okay to be hurting. I think that often there is a message, including in a lot of self-help books, that if you're suffering, there's something wrong and you need to take some steps to make yourself happy. And I think, as you know, as a, as a psychologist, that has a paradoxical effect of making you feel worse because then you feel like you're you're flawed or bad or not working hard enough because you're suffering. And, and I think that that stepping out of that idea that you can't that you shouldn't be suffering was important as well as validating that suicidal thoughts often do come from suffering and pain and i feel like if i want someone to think i have any credibility or ideas that might help them if i say if i minimize the suffering anyway they're going to say she doesn't she doesn't know what she's talking about she can't help me she doesn't get it and so i think those were the main things that influenced me and i read um man's search for meaning twice actually while i was writing it um with victor frankel talking about 
how he looked at suffering and having been a survivor of the Holocaust. And, and, and that struck me too, that here's someone in extreme suffering who is committing to life by finding meaning. And so those, those were the things that really made it important for me to try to validate that that's part of life and that that's a normal part of life. Yeah, the the Frankel book. If if folks listening have never gotten their hands on that, it, it's really a, a powerful book to read, and it's not that long either. It's something that you can get through in a pretty quick amount of time. Plus, it's it's riveting to to go through that. And this idea of meaning and purpose, and, and that is certainly a core theme of the workbook. And again, it's having these direct conversations, and, and this is something I I do in my clinical work, which. I mentioned this to you. It was very affirming to see this approach. And it's like, oh yeah, this is kind of how I talk to patients. This makes me feel better as a as a professional. Um, but checking in with folks about not are are you thinking about suicide, but how often have you? And just normalizing it that way. But it's not a yes or no question. It's more of a well, how often does this happen? Because it seems to happen for everybody, or it seems to happen for most people. And then I always preface it by like, well, this is an odd question. Why do you want to keep living right now? And a lot of times people will say, well, wow, that is a weird question. I was like, I know. That's why I give you a warning. And I think having that direct conversation really cuts out a lot of the noise. And we do that. I'm in a primary care clinic. We don't have a lot of time with folks. And it, it is sort of let's get to the heart of the issue pretty quickly. So. The answers to that, I mean, there's some themes that pop out, but it tends to be pretty fascinating because, you know, if someone is really struggling to come up with anything and they're also presenting a lot of depressive symptoms, then that's more of a concern than if they say, well, my family and my kids or whatever the case may be. Um, What's it been like in your work to hone in on that idea of meaning and purpose? And how do you go about clarifying that with the folks you work with? Yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm always, I, I feel affirmed to hear when other people take similar approaches too. Um, I, I do think that the direct conversation is a, is a effective way to communicate that it's okay to, to talk about anything. And, and so I think kind of what you're saying, asking a somewhat open-ended question, like why, why are you living? I, why do you want to live? Why do you want to keep on living? It's, I think that, some of what keeps people from asking those types of questions is this idea that if the person is kind of doing fine and you ask them that, then they're going to start feeling suicidal or they're not going to have reasons for living um, because you've mentioned it. And it just doesn't seem to work that way based on research that's looked at people asking about suicide. Rather, it's like it's there. So let's acknowledge it and work with it and talk about ambivalence. I mean, I Mm -hmm. think looking through any book that I've ever written by by people who've written clinically about suicide, they remark on the ambivalence, that the ambivalence, the mixed feelings of of both wanting to live and wanting to die, and how that can be life-saving for people that if you have those reasons for living. So the idea of highlighting it and asking can help. 
And like you said, some people, if they don't come up with anything, you get concerned, right? But then you can start asking, well, what are some, some of the things you like in your life, right? They mm -hmm. don't even have to be huge, big things. For some people, it's hobbies that they enjoy. It's getting up, you know, uh, having a, a game that they plan to play next week and stuff like that. And so I think the idea of where you can really open it up and then individualize it for that person and connect in that way is is important. I, I like that you brought that up, this idea of normalizing and getting more comfortable in that ambiguity. Because I think over the years, it's been more emphasized, you know, you're not going to plant a seed in somebody's head if you ask, yep. are you are you having suicidal thoughts? I mean, I think that's been a myth for a while and we've been chipping away at that. And I think there's been progress in that case where people are maybe a little bit more open to asking that question. I think the tool set from there is very limited. Yeah. And I know I've had conversations with even friends and extended family if they have someone in their life they're concerned about and asking for advice. And they ask, well, okay, well, if I ask that question and the person says, well, yes, I am. Well, oh, no, then what? Then what do I do? And I think that's where the available resources have maybe been too limited, whereas your workbook goes right in to that and says, okay, here's here's how we can address that, that ambiguity. These are the next steps. And you kind of organize this with the, the HOPE acronym, mm -hmm. which I, I think is great. So how did that come up? And can you explain that for the folks listening? Absolutely. I think that, and, and also thank you for saying that, I, I agree with you that um, safety planning, I think, has become more well-known as well as asking directly, but then those steps of like, okay, but how do we help someone reduce that pain and also have built hope, right? Those are the, the next steps. So I, I think therapists love acronyms. Sometimes <laughs> we go overboard, but at their best, they can be helpful in moments where it's hard to focus yourself. So I think that hope comes up again and again in the in the the literature and also in, in clinical work and hearing the stories of people who have felt suicidal but not attempted suicide or survived a suicide attempt because part of what drives that that suicide is the idea of being in intense pain and suffering and nothing ever changing. Mm -hmm. And so the idea is that even in that space if you thinking positive or saying everything's going to be fine, that's that feels invalidating and it's probably not realistic. But you can start with building some sparks, small sparks of hope. But then how do you do that? Right. It's, it's kind of the next thing. So that that's where the hope acronym came from. And it's uh, seek help. So that's the first part. And what I try to do in the workbook is expand beyond, you know, there are things like call hotlines. I think crisis text lines and warm light, those are all important, but there are some obstacles that people talk about. They feel like they're going to burden people or they're, they, they maybe aren't thinking, Oh, I could ask a clergy person or I could ask someone, maybe they're not thinking of all the possibilities. So that worksheet kind of tries to draw out what are the obstacles and who are some people that maybe you didn't think of that you could go talk to, um, the O is find optimism, and I think just hearing optimism, some people right away might cringe and be like, you know, is that being overly, like, I don't know, overly sunshiny and, and stuff. But it's it's true optimism, and so the, the 
worksheets really focus on how can we look at your past and find things that you have gotten through, mm -hmm. um, that you've made it through and have optimism about that. How can we name specific things that you look forward to? And then the P is for changing perspective. And that's kind of digs into some of the more cognitive behavioral therapy, uh, ideas that are you blaming yourself? Are you, you know, uh, it, not intentionally, of course, but is there self-blame? Is there idea that everything's bad and it will never get better? And can we chip away at that by examining the thoughts? And then the E is attend to emotions because I think that sometimes, sometimes you don't have to push back on those thoughts that, that are hurting. Sometimes it just helps say, okay, I'm having this thought. Why am I having it? Do I need some rest? Do, am I lonely? Am I, you know, have I forgotten to take my medication? Whatever it is. And kind of taking some space to then nurture your, your emotions, accept them and be self-compassionate. So that's the HOPE acronym. Which is wonderful. And there's a fantastic graphic in there as well that, uh, represents the, the acronym. And again, I, I can't speak about this enough that there's multiple exercises and worksheets. And I, again, I'm just a big proponent of homework and therapy where, you know, they say talk therapy and that's certainly a, a part of it. It's, it's work, it's work yeah. for the therapist and it's work for the person going to, to therapy. And this, it, it's a workbook. It, it's, you're asking whoever picks this up, to engage and commit some time, effort, and energy to, to thinking about these topics, to respond to questions. And there's prompts, there's checklists, there's, okay, what are these symptoms are you feeling? Or here are some potential things that other people have found hopeful. Do you find any of these things hopeful? And I was reading uh, exercise on that over the this past weekend. I mentioned this to you, um, but it was about finding finding hope or, you know, what are some things that maybe, uh, you would, you would look forward to, or you might be like bummed out that you missed out on. And I think one of the first ones was your favorite team wins a sports championship, which at first I like, I audibly laughed. I was like, that's, that's funny. That's. And then I, I thought of my brother and my brother and I were big fans of the, uh, the hockey team, Philadelphia Flyers, where we grew up. And I always made the joke that, they won two championships and then I was born and they haven't won since <laughs> so it's been like 40 some years. And I know he just would have been like really excited. I think more so for me than for himself had they ever won a, a Stanley cup. And so I, I laughed about it and then I was, was thinking about him and just thinking about the accuracy of like, Oh man, I, that would have been a good conversation to have or, and I, you know, teared up. And I think there's a lot of moments in the book like that where it's very effective in terms of generating like an emotional response and kind of, and I would hope prompt action on the person going through the book and, and looking for that hope, looking for that. Well, yeah, I feel like crap. What can I do about this? And the workbook has a lot of tangible ways to say, hey, here's some things you can do to feel better. That. What kind of feedback have you gotten so far from either other providers, uh, other you know patients? Yeah, thanks again for sharing that. I mean, that's I I wrote most of the book in the pandemic in uh, you know in a closed room and wow. to have it out there and um, 
here that it connects means a lot to me. I have had part of what that idea came from was people who have experienced suicidal thoughts and telling me that little things sometimes got them to the next day, even if that even if you're right, it sometimes it might seem like, is that too frivolous to be enough to hang on for, you know, but I, I think it kind of shifts it can shift your mind a little bit if you're like, I just got to find something little to look forward to versus everything's got to be better, you know. And so I've been very moved that I've had some people email me and contact me through Twitter to to say that they connect with it or that they understand it or that it's one person mentioned to me that they liked that it, it focused more on relationships than other things that they've yeah. seen, which can be as we know is is so key for for suicide prevention is feeling some connection and how sad that can be to see those connections weaken and and how they can slip away like that and so um and and some and when therapists say they've been able to use things in session too i i'm really pleased to hear that because that that's what i set out to do so thank you for sharing your feedback certainly and to, to follow up on the relationship piece and again, you, you emphasize this idea of safety planning. So, you know, someone is saying they're suicidal and it's sort of this rallying the troops of like, okay, what can we do to keep you safe? Yep. As this immediate response of, well, we don't want you to end your life, certainly. Let's take away any kind of means you have, access to means like, so a firearm, pills, sharp objects, things like that. And there's always this like, okay, your safety plan, here are your, your emergency contacts, so the crisis lines. All right, who in your life are friends, like people you trust, like who can you contact if you're in a crisis, which, again, is very is helpful, is, yeah. is important. I don't want to dismiss that. What the workbook does is and, and again, it's it's a little bit more laid back sounds like a bad term, but it's more of like, hey, who in your life did you used to like to hang out with and how would you like to cultivate and make that a stronger relationship? And not only that, how might you do that? So might you go to a movie or go out to lunch or something with or send somebody a text? It gets really into the weeds of who are these people? Why are they important to you? And then, well, how can you take a small step to reconnect with that individual? Um, Which all makes perfect sense, but I don't know if it's been really presented this way before. It feels like this workbook fills fills a void that was there previously. I am glad to hear that because I do think a lot of that comes from clinical experience, right? Mm -hmm. Where it feels really overwhelming for someone to say they're lonely and they're thinking now I have to go out and meet a bunch of people or I need to do this and do that. Whereas, okay, well, let's take a step back. Did you like this person and maybe you haven't been in touch? What's holding you back? Okay, well, maybe you don't immediately go out and meet a bunch of people or you don't plan to attend a meetup or whatever it is, but can you just text that person? Right. And, and, and yeah, I think I can do that. Right. And Mm -hmm. so I think, I think that those little steps are so key, especially in a, in a mindset where someone's in so much pain where they're thinking of killing themselves, because I think that it, it seems like so distant and far away, the idea of, having to 
either be the way life used to be where you had a bunch of friends or to create something that never was versus like what's something pretty familiar that you might be able to picture yourself doing. And, and that's what I hope that those little things, because those can have big effects, even if they're small interactions when, when you're in that place, I know I felt that way where, you know, you're feeling really down and you have one nice reconnection with someone and it can really lift your mood and your spirits. Yeah, and and again, the other part of this speaking directly with the individual that that's reading through the book that I enjoyed is you acknowledge multiple times this is hard, this is not easy, and if you had a hard time doing that exercise that I just listed, that's okay. And I mean, it's literally like written that way <laughs> in the book, which which again, it sounds like that evolved over time of almost like, okay, this is, this book is a book, though it's more of how can I turn this into a therapy appointment or an intervention rather than here's just some information. Yeah. Yeah. How, how can I, at least, how can I help this person to feel connected to me as they're reading this? And then I'm, and I'm, sending out this advice but how can, how can i let them know that I, that i'm rooting for them and that i'm looking for their strengths and that i'm not judging them if they're hitting stumbling blocks because you know, we're we're interpersonal beings you know it's it's easier if we feel we have someone on the journey with us a little bit. And that's hard to do through a book though, right? Because uh, in therapy, you can really individually tailor or try to, to people. And so I, that was something that happened over time where it was like, really imagine your picture, you're talking to one person and, and let it go from there. Yeah, it feels like a respectful approach. There's not, there's no shaming like, Oh, you shouldn't have suicidal thoughts or, right. and, and I think there's, <laughs> I've had multiple patients come to me over the years. They're like, I don't want to feel angry. I was like, well, good luck, because that's not going to happen. Yep. And, and sometimes I'll just say it that bluntly, and they'll kind of cock their head and look at me of like, well, what do you mean? I said, like, well, no, anger is normal. Like, this is something that's going to happen. Your brain's going to do. It's how can you accept and respond to that anger and um, maybe make different choices or find another way to live with things. And that... I, I think can be liberating for folks to realize like, Oh, I don't have to fight against this emotion. This emotion necessarily isn't the, I'm not the problem. It's like, because it kind of layers on that suffering. Not only are you angry or anxious or depressed, but then you're like guilty or shameful. And uh, you were talking about that earlier that you're trying to get away from or trying to help folks be educated about that. Absolutely, that you can you can have suicidal thoughts and have pain and also have a good life and have meaning and connection and, and joy alongside that. You don't have to get rid of it to have those things because most we can't, right? And let, I mean, people who try to completely get rid of that pain through substances or things like that, it's temporary. And, and so you're right, it, but there is something... There is a belief that sets in, and I get it. I felt that way before, too, where I'm like, oh, just stop worrying about this. This isn't a big deal. Stop worrying about it. And then you end up having, you know, the secondary thing. Well, here I am, a therapist, and I can't stop worrying about something that's meaningless, right? And so I can kind of, but if you step out of that spiral and say, okay, I have this worry, and whether it's significant or not, it's there. What am I going to do about it? Maybe I'll problem solve, or maybe I just I'll acknowledge it and not do anything about it, but 
it's there. It doesn't, it doesn't have to mean that I can't do things that I care about too, even while that worries there. Yeah. I mean, that resonates with me. Certainly being a therapist, I have a therapist. I've met with her, you know, about once or so a month for the past six years. It's incredibly helpful. Um, you know, she points out things to me that I'm like, Oh, right. Yeah. I should do that for myself. Um, and that perspective is, is useful. I wonder, and this might be a bit personal, but like how you talked about writing this, this book a lot during the pandemic, which it was incredibly challenging for, you know, many, many of us and maybe isn't over now, which yeah. is a, a bit of a stressful situation. Mm -hmm. What helps you find purpose, find, find meaning. And it certainly seems like a lot of it was channeled into this text, but kind of what strategies work for you? I use a lot of the skills that we learn in therapy and I find a lot of purpose as, as a mom, um, and, and through my family. But I also started seeing a therapist when the pandemic started because mm -hmm. I, in order to be an effective therapist and manage the many stressors that were suddenly piled on and changing, I, I like you, thought having someone outside of my head helping me talk through this is probably going to be the better route here than, than, you know, and, and it has been, it's been helpful just to have reserved time and space to get someone else's feedback to, to help guide and what am I missing or what other pathways am I not considering? And so I, I think that's been really helpful and, and just trying to focus. I, there are worries that we have and, and fears that are based a hundred percent on things that are happening, right? They're not things that we can easily push away. But alongside those worries, I also try to really experience, allow myself to savor gratitude and joy for family time that has increased since the pandemic started. That's been a positive thing and other things that are good. And it doesn't mean that everything's okay or that those things that, that hurt don't still hurt, but at least... I can have joy alongside that too. And, and so that's been my main method, I think, getting some outside help and also just kind of centering myself on, on the main priorities that I have. Yeah. And as you, as you describe that, it, it, it's work, it takes yeah, effort it and energy. And this, I, you know, a theme I hear from, from patients quite a bit is, you know, they're going through life and they're like, I should be more happy. Yeah. Like I have, you know, good spouse, you know, good kids. Uh, my career is fine. I'm not financially in trouble. I should be happy and I'm not. And sort of their, their general question is why? Yeah. And I wonder if you I imagine you have similar experiences and what is as a therapist? What is your response to that? I what I try to maybe shift from in those times is talk about how like gratitude can get in the way sometimes it can be helpful but it can also get in the way if it becomes a reason to minimize your feelings and so I try to encourage people to do that attend to your emotions step where it's like it's valid to feel stressed or unhappy even if you don't have it worse than everybody else right you can still feel disappointed or distressed 
And the way to deal with that is to acknowledge it and maybe do some things that address it rather than then try to stomp it out. And so sometimes for some people that's writing, for some people it's art, for some people it's just talking about it in therapy and having a space to say, like, I just, I, I'm frustrated right now that how um, I have to think so much about traveling or I haven't seen people in a long time or how something as simple as wanting to go out to eat has changed. And to say that and then non-judgmentally allow for, for the space of that emotions and how that actually is more effective typically than saying, oh, I should just be grateful. I know people have it worse because I hear that all the time too, mm -hmm. right? I think that often enough myself. <laughs> <laughs> like this feels familiar, right? Yeah. I, I know what this is like. Exactly. Well, and this idea of just acknowledging that life is challenging and that I don't really think the default is happiness. <laughs> I think the default is it's a struggle for all of us. And I say this a lot is that, you know, anybody you run into during the day, they're burdened with one or two or 17 things and they're, they're doing the best they can to keep it together. And I think when you gain that perspective, it gives hopefully yourself some grace of I'm doing the best I can. And that's a lot. It's a lot to be doing that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's where that self-compassion piece, that actually was not an original separate chapter. That was just part of a chapter. And the editors thought it doesn't really fit where you crammed it in. Do you think that's worth developing a, a separate chapter? And I'm really glad they did that because I almost feel like when you're doing therapy or even in your day-to-day -day life, one of the things that you can have some control over is trying to be a little bit more self-compassionate. And like you said, not just recognize the things you didn't do or you didn't get to, but try to acknowledge, okay, but what did I do? What did I do today to take care of myself or to take care of my family? And so that's, that's, I, I think you're right. That's a big piece of it is kind of like, how do you relate to yourself and your emotions in a kinder way rather than feeling at odds with them and fighting it all the time? Yeah, I, that seems to be a, a major component of a lot of the appointments where, you know, another theme is like someone will come in and be like, yeah, I'm really stressed out. I don't know why. I was like, oh, okay, what's going on in your life right now? It's like, well, I sold a house. I bought a house. We just had a kid. And it's like, wait, 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 <laughs> and I, and I'll just say it, it makes a lot of sense that you would be stressed out right now. I think most people in your situation would be stressed out and they'll be like, oh, okay. <laughs> it's almost like they want a different answer. Like, oh, like you're broken. You shouldn't be stressed yeah. out. And it's like, no, you, you should be stressed out. Absolutely. Be stressed. It's okay. Stress is the appropriate response to that, right? No, exactly. you're, you're totally right. And I, and that's where I do think that talking to a therapist when, when you can, like, I, I feel like that's been one of the main benefits is that like, even as, as psychologists, it's not easy to recognize that it might be easier to recognize, okay, here's the portion of things that I didn't do, or here are the things that I don't like the way that I feel. But then when you have someone who can zoom out and say, okay, but wait a second, you just listed like three of the top 10 most stressful things people go through. And you went through exactly. it in the last two months. If you didn't feel stressed, I'd be worried that you weren't, right. you know, that you were checked <laughs> out from your experiences or something. Yeah, I'll sometimes get out a pen and 
paper and do the stress response or stress performance curve. <laughs> like, you know, some stress is good. Too much stress is not a great thing. For you with this this workbook now out in, in, in the open and uh, it sounds like so far it's been a very positive reception and, and that, that's wonderful. I'm glad it exists. I will continue to use it. Is there a step two or like kind of where, what's next uh, for for you career-wise or more like on this suicidal prevent, suicide prevention theme for you? It's a great question. And I, I, I thought about it for quite a bit and then I decided I'm going to sit back a little bit and see kind of where, what, what emerges and, and where it comes from. I am, I do currently, I am about to start a new research project that does focus on, um, I measure some momentary suicidal thoughts and behaviors, looking specifically at interpersonal components to that. And it's something that they complete ecological momentary assessment where they carry around a tablet and they're in their environment and, and answer questions about interpersonal issues and, and, and suicidal thoughts and other things related to that. And so I have wondered, depending on what's found there, I know some people do well with like apps or things that they yeah. can kind of in the moment easily access. Some people don't like that. You, you've probably seen this too with your clients. Some want like a journal on their writing or they want a physical workbook. Others want something on their phone that really guides them through. And so I'm kind of looking to see like, what are some other ways to connect with more people who are not connecting with what we currently have? But I'm, I'm pretty open at this point. If you have any ideas, I'd love to hear them. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, being, you know, working for the VA, the Veterans Affairs, there's a lot of resources that are, they have a slew of apps that are free mm -hmm. to download. And I, my spiel with the folks I work with is, hey, it's free to download. Let Treat it as an experiment. Try it out. If you like it, awesome. If you don't, delete it and tell me why you didn't like it. And mm -hmm. in addition to that, there's, hey, I have this worksheet I can hand you, or there's this book, or there's a, a podcast or there's a YouTube channel you can look at. I think the great thing about all the media we have now is there are a lot of resources. I think from a consumer or patient point of view, it's overwhelming yeah. to know what's good or what's not useful. Um, and it's hard to, I think from a professional standpoint, know there's so much out there and there's new stuff every day, like what is actually effective it's almost like stuff's put out there. We don't really have research on it, but it's out there. Yeah. So yeah. I think trying to find a good middle ground between, you know, hey, try this, try that, versus like, hey, we know this is useful and run with it. Um, but, yeah, I've always been an advocate for innovation. I was doing research on, like, online counseling back in 2000. Wow. So I – saw that like, well, things just inevitably are going to go that way. And I remember most of the professors at the time were like, well, that's not going to work. <laughs> I, I found one who was very into it and we were able to do some publications and uh, we're still very close, close uh, colleagues. So I feel like, there, like, and we were talking about this, you know, a few moments ago, I feel like there just needs to be more, mm -hmm. more resources, more normalization, so when suicide, suicide prevention, suicide awareness, even just mental health in general, but especially suicide, I think a lot of people re recoil 
and that oh that's that happens to them over there and i both as a therapist and as a family member of someone who died by suicide it's it's not it's yeah. it could be anyone and I, it makes me <laughs> very motivated to try to help others not be in the reality that i've been in the last few years of the what ifs what could have been done differently and also like man my brother was really suffering and as much as i knew he was suffering like had i known i would have done anything possible to to you know get in the way of that so it's great to hear that you know folks like yourself are very much like on the front lines of trying to figure out how can we how can we be better uh how can we have better resources for for individuals that's it's great to hear Thank you. I, I do think you're right that there are, I, I like a lot of the VA apps too, by the way, I recommend them. And the Department of Defense has a great virtual hope box app that yeah. I like. Yeah, that's um, one of them. Yep, sure. Yeah, it's great. And, but, but, but you're right. One of the things that has happened a couple times when people found out about me writing this book, in fact, even when I was just going to mail it at the post office, is they would say, Oh, I'm never going to need that. Even though that, that wasn't even any, I wasn't trying to engage them, you know, and I'm like, uh, I didn't say this because I'm just at the post office, but you don't know if you're going to need it. There isn't a particular person that's not so far away from you. And it does reflect what you're saying, that idea of like, but that I'm never going to need that. And no one I know is going to need that, you know? Yeah. And I, I appreciate you refreshing my memory on that because that was one of the things I really liked about the book. I even tweeted about this, <laughs> that I, I really think this says the Suicidal Thoughts Workbook, and that's the title of it. You know, if you are depressed or even anxious or if you just want some ideas on how, like living well, this idea of, you know, I'm going about my life, I'm plugging away, some days are hard, some days are better, but like, yeah, I'm, it's kind of a struggle. I'm not thinking about it in my, in my life. I think this workbook could be incredibly helpful because it hones in on these ideas of, why do you want to live? What's important to you? And how can you do more of that important stuff? And I think that's a great approach for a lot of presenting issues uh, for people. So and I'm putting this in big quotes. Normal folks could benefit from looking through this workbook and doing some of these exercises because I do think it would result in a fresh perspective or maybe like, hey, I should do X, Y and Z more often because I've fallen away from it. Um, it, I wouldn't limit it to like, oh, this is only for patients who are suicidal. Um, th that's my thought. I don't know what other feedback you've gotten. I, I, I agree. I think that I wanted the title to be plain, although I didn't come up with it. The, um, editor did, but well, I, we did it together, but initially they, I, I'm not the one who said it's got to be in the title, but I was glad that it was because I want someone who has suicidal thoughts to say, okay, that is what right. I'm looking for. It's not vague at all, but absolutely. I think that if we think about suicidal thoughts as something that just happens to other people who have all this mysterious stuff going on that can affect us, that's just not realistic that it's, it's part of all of us looking for meaning in our life that's uh, very natural it's part of being human and 
needing tools to cope with life stressors that, that come up. And so the idea is yes, safety and, and how important that is, but also, but how can you, how can your life feel better so that you, you want to stay? And so I, I appreciate that. And that is, that is my hope that there are exercises in there that I've used clinically too. And people, even if they're not having suicidal thoughts that I'll suggest because they're struggling with one of those areas relationships, meaning, um, self-compassion. Absolutely. Yeah. And even like the, the sections on values of clarifying like, Hey, what is, what matters to you? What, what is important? And there's times in, in treatment where I'll ask that question and it turns into a very big conversation because there's a lot of ambiguity and uncertainty about that. I, I think, you know, we all sometimes get into a routine and go through the motions and then you get detached from why am I going through these motions? Yeah. Um, you know, again, with things about the pandemic and what are trends that that you see? Because I know, you know, suicide had been trending up over the last, you know, I think been 10 years or so. Why do you think that's happening? I realize that's a very broad question, but what do you think? And I guess I would contain this to the states, but just in general, like, what do you think are some factors that make people feel a little bit more isolated or detached? I think it's such a good question. And I, I always I really don't have a very satisfying answer at all, because I think it is I think that it is so complicated. I do think that. And, and and also, I, I think that because there are so many different pathways where people end up having suicidal thoughts and and can get there, that it's really it's hard to pinpoint broader trends. It does seem like some of the things that I mean, we look at the pandemic, right, and initially it looked like suicides had declined and there have been a lot of speculation about that. And it's not it's not really clear. And so I, I kind of think about um, in the forward where Dr. Joyner talks a little bit about specifically wondering about the opiate crisis and and violence and a certain relationship within the United States to that. And if those factors are relevant for us. So that's one thought that I have. But the other things that I think about, and um, I did read the post you wrote about your brother, some of the things really stood out to me as um, things like job security and other struggles like that and how those can affect people. And if we look back on that period of time and think about um, student debt, times of unemployment, times of um, political strife, that those factors can affect rates too. So it's not it's not a very good answer. It's very speculative, but I do think what what we see are general trends of when people have their their basic needs met, have safe housing, have food security, connected with others, access to care, tend to see those rates go down on average. And, and so it's important to kind of do what we know, even if we're not sure exactly what why trends are certain one one way or another. Yeah, I, I think this crosses over with political issues that come up where, you know, taking care of people's basic needs is is a mental health issue as well. Mm -hmm. And that if you try to increase safety nets and, like you said, have jobs for people and, again, have there's purpose, there's meaning and there's security, then that will help. 
uh, for to prevent some of this maybe not eliminate it certainly but it's it could it could be beneficial and i feel like those conversations are are happening a little bit but it gets very controversial (laughs) and it's it's, i think it's a challenge for a field to get involved in that sometimes not to turn into a political conversation but in in terms of just these kind of social justice issues and how that relates to mental health and wellness how do you approach that or suggest that other psychologists approach that? I, I agree that it's, it's a tricky one. And I think that, but if, if you kind of look at it from an empirical point of view and rather than a political point of view, we're not trying to overly simplify things, yeah, no, but no worries. We, you know, we, and, or even just look at clinical experiences with therapists. We know that there for some portion of patients who are struggling with suicidal thoughts, they're worried about uh, getting evicted. They're worried about not being able to provide for their family. They're struggling with chronic medical conditions and their bills are piling up or they can't afford their medication. So those those are things that as a therapist, when we see people in those situations, we do what we can to try to connect with resources, to try to reduce the self blame. But to me, it seems like it would be real effective to say, hey, you have you have access to care and you don't have to worry about going bankrupt trying to deal with this medical condition that you're really stressed out about. Or you don't have to worry about your family being evicted during this very stressful time. So things like that, I think it doesn't. It doesn't have to be political, but I know it does because it it ends up being in that way. So I actually think, in my observation anyway, I I see more of these types of discussions in suicide prevention than maybe in the past. It might be just me noticing more, but talking about, like, what are some of the upstream issues that, like, we might be able to prevent people from getting to that place of despair in in the first place? Yeah, despair and and desperation and what, what is fueling that? Yeah. And certainly, you know, I think in the past it was, well, that's an internal issue. Like, mm-hmm. like, quote unquote, that person was broken or had something wrong as opposed to, well, what's the environment? What are the external issues contributing to, you know, that sense of desperation, that amount of emotional pain? And it's just good for all of us to broaden our perspective on what are some of these factors that can cause people to just be like, I'm done. Yeah. I'm, I'm done. And yeah. we start off by talking about like how normal that is to consider that as an option. And this brings us full circle back to just that. I'm glad that this book really exists and that it's out there and easily accessible and uh, can be used by therapists or even just, you know, someone could find it on Amazon and say, Hey, this, this says it can help with suicidal thoughts. That's me. Let me check it out. So I, I really appreciate all the time and effort and energy that you put into creating this this book. Um, what's it like for it to be done? <laughs> it's it's really amazing. It's kind of unbelievable in a way because there are definitely times where I'm like, I don't, you know, you you can't even uh, read your own writing anymore and know if it makes sense. So I, the, the big, one of the most nerve wracking things was, you know, you send it out to kind of um, 
endorsers, right, to endorse the book so they get review copies. And so I picked these people that I really respect in the field and that are experts. And I'm like, oh, no, what if they're like, this is this is way off. But You so wrote far, what? <laughs> yeah, wait a second. <laughs> what, what planet are you on? Um, fortunately, that did not happen. So <laughs> so that was good. So I just now what I really enjoy is connecting with, with people like you and, and other clinicians and also people who have struggled or known people who struggled and and having conversations about what parts connected for them and what parts they had questions about or what kinds of things they considered and so having those connections and dialogue that that's been really gratifying I think is the right word to feel like I've been able to it didn't stop with writing it and okay, it's now it's out there. It's like there's a dialogue where I can hear what people think of it. I can have other ideas. And when you ask me about that next step, maybe that will come organically from talking to people and hearing what what else is needed out there. And so I've it's been it's been really wild. <laughs> but but good. <laughs> well, uh one, whatever the next step is, I'd be thrilled to hear about that. So um and two, you know, congratulations. It's it's no small thing to get a book like this out in the world. Uh, I can only imagine how many hours of, of labor that was to put that together, especially on such an emotionally laden topic. So just, you know, congratulations to you for having that out there. Thank you again for creating this. I, I've I felt good as a therapist and as a survivor of suicide to, to read this. Um, it felt good to use it with a veteran. And I, since I just got it, I will continue to use it with other patients that I work with. And, uh, you know, just best of luck going forward. I guess a final thing and more just plugging the book. How can folks find it? What's the easiest way for them to, to get a hold of it or check out a sample or where, where should they go? If uh, if you go to Amazon, you can see the whole first chapter is up on there as a preview, and then it's also available through Bookshop and Book Depository if that's free shipping worldwide, if that's another option. And my website, KatherineHGordon.com, also has some links to other places, but Barnes & Noble, Target, they um, a lot of them you can access them through their websites. And, I, websites. and I've been checking in with you on, on Twitter. Is What's your Twitter names in case someone wants to reach out to you that way? Sure. It's at Dr. Catherine Gordon, D-R-K-A-T-H-R-Y-N-G-O-R-D-O-N. And again, the book is called The Suicidal Thoughts Workbook, CBT Skills to Reduce Emotional Pain, Increase Hope, and Prevent Suicide. And I believe it's going to do those things. So uh, I'm glad it exists. And thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much. That means the world to me. And thank you so much for inviting me on. Yeah, you're welcome.